Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, very pleased to be joined today by Jim Cummings. Uh, Jim Cummings is the writer and director of Thunder Road and The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Uh, and he is the co-writer and co-director of The Beta Test, which we'll be talking a bit about today. Uh, I'm very excited. But I, he's also uh, the co-star of Halloween Kills. I want to that was that was a pleasant surprise for for some of us in the theater there. Can I can I ask you for like just two minutes about that real yeah, quick? Sure. How did how did that come about? How did that uh, how did that happen? It was a surprise to me as well. So um, I got a phone call from David Gordon Green, who was this long term pen pal buddy of mine. He's another Southern filmmaker. I grew up in New Orleans and always looked up to him. And uh, I had sent him the Thunder Road short film and then I guess Danny McBride had sent it to him a few weeks prior. So we had like a couple of good conversations. And then um, he saw Thunder Road again on an airplane when he was casting for Halloween Kills. And he was like, oh, I think Jim could do this part. And he called me and was like, yeah, I think you could do this thing. Can I send you for this part of the script? And I didn't have to audition. I, he was just like, yeah, you can do it. Come on down. We'll hang out in Wilmington. And then <laughs> I did. And I was very nervous because I'm not a trained actor. And I was nervous that I was going to ruin the movie. And uh, and he's just such a lovely guy. And uh, is just so free on set and down to support actors and took a chance on me. And I, I owe a lot to him. He's a really, really lovely guy. Yeah. Uh, you, it's funny that you say you're not a trained actor because, I mean, uh, what jumps out in Thunder Road and Wolf of Snow Hollow and the beta test uh, is the fact that you're really good on camera. I mean, I like, you know, you're you're writing and directing and starring in these movies. What is uh, is is there, what is what is what is your mindset like as you step in front of the camera uh, and and kind of get get going with these things after having, again, written them and kind of set the shots up and, and all that stuff? I think I'm always going to be that the movie is somehow going to play at Mystery Science Theater and that everybody's going to be making jokes about the movie throughout. And so in the writing process, we try to make it as bulletproof or self-deprecating and um, humiliating as possible to perform. Um, that's kind of my favorite thing to do is to kind of make myself look terrible and uh, and also provide some humanity for people and jokes and stuff like that. But really... Um, the goal is to make something impressive for audiences. And so stepping out in front of the camera is very terrifying for me. I'm not a trained actor. I have all of these inadequacies, uh, feelings of inadequacy that I'm not as good as anybody else. But then because of that, it means that I work 20 times harder than many other actors. I, do, I have to have it be forensically performed months in advance so that I can elevate it and make it seem natural on set. So um, it's very daunting to, to show up and run in front of the camera, but it's becoming a lot easier for me. And the more people that I speak to who are professional actors say that they have those same feelings of inadequacy and that they're frauds and um, that th there is no magic to it and they shouldn't be as celebrated as they are and all of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a this is a, a business of Hollywood podcast. And I, I one of the things I really want to get into with you is making these films uh, in an independent setting, uh, but also distributing them in an independent setting, because that is, that's kind of the, the, the thing that jumps out at me the most about your career is that you've made this work entirely outside of the studio system, more or less, you know, uh, could you talk to us a little bit about the, the Thunder Road short that you made, uh, and sent to Sundance and then how working with the Sundance, uh, Institute kind of helped, uh, get your, get your career going on a business footing. Yeah, sure. So I was a producer for about six years. 
um, working with rappers like Lil Dicky to make music videos and my buddy Tony Ascenda and my buddy Danny Madden, who are both very esteemed filmmakers now, but we were just kids that we went to the same college and I was good on the phone. So I was pretending to be a producer and helping them out. Um, and making sketch comedy and, you know, commercials and short films and stuff like that. Um, but I was way too timid to do anything on my own. And then, uh, I was working at a company called college humor and I was doing three or four sketches a week. So I was organizing these sets, doing the budgets, doing schedules, doing everything. And uh, I was like, you know what? I could probably do something. I'm doing this enough for these people. I should try to make something very impressive. And I had a 45 minute commute to work and I could do three full rehearsals of the Thunder Road short on the drive there. I had the idea in like the, the summer of 2015. And I was inspired by Trey Schultz, who had just made Krisha, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And he shot it for nothing in his backyard, 35 grand. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, bought by A24 and got him a three picture deal and all that sort of thing. Um, and so I was primed to make something cool. And then I booked out a funeral home on a Saturday and shot the Thunder Road short film for about five and a half thousand dollars, basically my entire savings account from working at College Humor. I got my friends to work on it and, you know, populate the crowd of the funeral goers and all that sort of thing. And then I submitted it to Sundance, never thinking we'd get in. And we got in and then won the grand jury prize. And then um, when I was doing the Kickstarter for the Thunder Road feature, the Sundance Institute reached out and they were like, oh, have you thought about self-distribution? You seem like the kind of person that would be down to do that. I'm very adamant on social media that anybody can do this and th that they should. People should feel much more confirmed in making their own movies and not going through the systems of Hollywood because Trey inspired me to do it myself. Um, so we finished the film. It won South by Southwest. And then I applied for the Sundance Creative Distribution Fellowship, which was a grant of 33 grand that they would give to three films. And we were just one of them. And uh, the prerequisite was that we would have completely open books and that Sundance would share that information with the public for the future of film. And I loved it. And it was like, cool, we, we would do this anyway. And so we got $33,000 for free as a grant from uh, Sundance. And we spent it all in digital marketing. And uh, there's actually a case study that you can look up. If you look up case study Thunder Road Sundance, I'm sure you'll find it. But it's a wonderful website that goes through pie charts of how we spent the money and what it was like to diversify the work amongst the team and get the film out there. And that kind of put us on the map. And uh, it was great. Anybody that reads that document, it should become inoculation from the distribution system. And instead, people feel like they can do it themselves, which is kind of what I wanted in the first place. And then we made a studio film with MGM called The Wolf of Snow Hollow, following Steven Soderbergh's model of doing one for them and one for us. And then we had planned to release the beta test in the same way to do, uh, to go to a bank and take out a loan of the 33 grand or 50 grand or whatever it would be to release the beta test on our own. But then IFC films reached out and they had a better idea of how to release the film than we mm -hmm. did. And it, it was a no brainer. It was yeah. like, um, these people are exactly like us. They have the same sense of humor and are willing to, you know, grind the ax against the system in the same way that we were. And they've been doing this for 30 years and been doing yeah. it for films like Itumama Tambia and, and The Death of Stalin, sure. you know, which got banned in Russia. You know, like all of these big risky movies. And Ariana Boko, the head over there, is so 
awesome. And um, that team is so wonderful and hardworking and gets the jokes. And so we said, yeah, of course, we're going to go yeah. with that. Yeah. So I want to talk about uh, working with IFC. So you, you know, kind of self-distribute this first film and then you, you're working with IFC. When you say that they they had a great idea of how to market, what what did they bring to you and kind of convince you as the filmmaker, as the writer, co-writer, director, you know, star? Like, what did they come to you and say, this is how we're going to do it. This is what this is our plan for you. They said, we have a list of people that we want to send the films to influencers and studio heads and all that stuff. And we're not going to send it to them. We're going to send it to their assistants, which is who we made the film for. We made the film for Hollywood assistants and as a big fuck you to the system. Um, and they said, that's, that's one of the good ideas. And I was so excited by that, but I kept quiet on the phone. I was like, okay, cool. Yes, that sounds like a good idea. And they just had a thousand ideas like that where every time Matt Landers is the head of digital marketing over there. Um, and he and his team have been working really hard on the film. And every time I, I call the guy, he talks me off the ledge and is able to like talk about how to build lookalike audiences and reach the audience that I wasn't thinking we'd be going for. So like the people who like 50 shades of gray, but also like South park. And it's like, there are just really wonderful psychographic analysts that understand um, marketing far better than I could. And so we spoke the same language and they were very quickly able to convince me that they would do a better job than I could, um, or my team could from laptops. And um, it was very freeing. It was, it was nice to meet juggernauts that, um, that got it as well as we did. Yeah. So I'm sorry, remind me on the timeline, you you guys finished filming uh, before the pandemic, but you've been doing all of the post stuff in the pandemic, right? From, Is that... from this room, from this room yeah. I'm talking to you through. Yeah. So we shot it in November and December of 2019. There were plans afoot to shoot it in March. Obviously, I'm incredibly glad that we didn't do that. Um, but we made it with our friends uh, at Vanishing Angle. They produced my two previous films. And we shot the agency stuff in the leasing office on the second floor of our offices. So it was like, we actively got to go in and have our headquarters be downstairs, which is just our offices. And then we found out that the upstairs, we could completely convert to make it look like this Hollywood agency. And so it was just the most fun ever. We got to like dress our buddies up in suits and dresses and pretend to be agents for a while and have it look like the offices at CAA or WME. And it was just really, it felt subversive. It felt like we were doing something that we shouldn't be doing. And um, it was just a blast, man. Yeah. I, uh, well, talk a little bit about what the, what this post-production period has been like. Cause it's, it's weird, yeah. right? I mean, it's weird yeah. not being able to, you know, uh, get together with everybody in the same room. You've got, you've got kind of yeah. limited space, limited, limited folks. Uh, what, what was that creative process like? And I didn't trust anybody. I couldn't have any vendor outside of my team who I trust to death um, work on this movie because it was so radioactive. Because it is about Hollywood, um, I was nervous that people would talk about it. And I couldn't I couldn't let the cat out of the bag until it was available publicly. You know, it's harder to sue someone when everybody's <laughs> laughing at it than it is, you know, eight months before the movie comes out. So that means that I had to learn After Effects. I had to learn Adobe Audition to mix the film in 5.1 in my garage. We had to buy speakers from Guitar Center because they have a 45-day return policy. So we mixed the movie in 44 days in the room I'm speaking to you in. Um, we, we did everything on our own. We, we, we didn't use Pro Tools, which was so frustrating for all of my other films where you would rent out a stage and hand it off to someone who's hired to work on the thing, who's working on a thousand different things at the same time, um, to do this thing and make it perfect before it goes out the door. We had, uh, for The Wolf of Snow Hollow, five days to mix the film. I had 44 days to mix the beta test. And I think that's why it feels so meticulous and forensic and well-made. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, 
I knew that I was going to be editing the film for at least eight months. Uh, you know, we went into lockdown two months into editing the film. So I, I knew that all I needed was this computer I'm talking to you on and um, a little Zoom recorder to do some sound design and stuff like that. And then PJ would get tested and come over for a week and a half sometimes and we would just crunch through the edit or color correction or VFX or whatever it was. Um, but I think that's the future. Anybody can do this stuff now from a laptop. The technology is only becoming more accessible and um, and easier to, to use. And um, yeah, it's kind of funny. The technology was just there at a time when we could pretend to be a movie studio or a post facility and not be talked out of it. Yeah. Let's let's talk about the movie a little bit. It's interesting that you mentioned you're afraid of being sued because that that uh, thought jumped out to me once or twice while I was watching it as well. You're using a lot of names of companies here. Um, but let's let's actually tell people what the movie is about. What what is your uh, what is your like one paragraph pitch to people uh, sure. about about the beta test? Sure. It, uh, the beta test is about a Hollywood agent who is engaged to be married in about six weeks. And he gets a letter in the mail inviting him to a no-strings-attached sexual encounter in a hotel room uh, by an admirer. And he goes, and it's wonderful, but then he never gets another letter, and it starts to drive him crazy. And it, it's kind of the Chinatown detective story of who who done it, who sent this letter to me, and who did I um, sleep with that wasn't my wife, and then my fiance. And then it is also about... Uh, the WGA packaging fight, which is a real uh, fight that was happening between the agents and the Writers Guild of America West. And it, it could have completely shifted the landscape of Hollywood. We were making it while it was happening. And we didn't know if the writers were going to win, if the good guys were going to win, or if the bad guys, the Death Star, was going to win. Um, and it could have completely decimated actual creativity um, and representation in the film industry uh, forever. And I'm glad that the good guys won. But, you know, we make some pretty rough jokes about it. Um, deservedly so, I think. We're supporting the writers and and creatives. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of risky stuff that we say in the movie that I was nervous about putting in. And then PJ was like, fuck it. Burn it down. Like, let's, let's you know, just do everything. Let's, it's not, that's not bad enough. Let's make it even worse. And so we made it as toxic and radioactive as we possibly could before it went out the door. Yeah. Well, let's let's uh, explain to people what packaging is exactly, because sure. I it's a it's this I, I, I while I was watching the movie, I was like, I understand the packaging fight. I don't I didn't live it. I'm not uh, I'm not I'm neither an agent nor a member of the Writers Guild. So but I, I have friends who are and who were very annoyed with how the whole thing, you know, was yeah. shaking out. And uh, but I do think it's I do think it's a little were you ever worried that, you know, your average uh, viewer of Wolf of Snow Hollow who watched this movie, you know, out in Cincinnati or something, you know, wasn't going to be able to, to, to follow what was happening or that it was too inside baseball? I don't know. I hear that term inside baseball a lot, but really like it was on the front page of every newspaper for a long time. Like I was talking to my aunt about it and I was like, oh, I'm making this movie about this, uh, this fight in Hollywood. And she goes, oh, the WGA fight, the studio fight. Yeah, I know about that. And so I was like, I, and my aunt's, you know, almost 70. So like, I, I think really, um, it is a bit more pedestrian than you think. And it is a labor fight. So like most people do, do care about it where it's like, okay, we're, we're fighting for the workers. We're supporting the workers, um, against this industry that's trying to screw them over. It's an age old story. So I don't 
I, I was never worried about that. And also, like, we had done so much research already that even if it was just Hollywood that would appreciate it, um, we were prepared for that to be the case. But so many times when we screen the movie for people, they're like, oh, I'm in the world of sales, and there's so much corporate doublespeak. This is exactly what I'm going through. It just <laughs> happens to be in a different industry. It's not, it's not film. Um, long answer, short question. Packaging is a term that was made up by the agencies uh, in the late 80s, um, I think, where uh, the majority of the income that was coming in from the 1920s on was about 10% of all of their client pool. So if if you got a job for a client who's acting in a movie, they take 10% of it, and that was kind of the rules. Then packaging came about, which is, let's say I align one of our writers and one of our directors and one of our stars, and we put them together in this TV show package, and they go in and pitch the film to Netflix. Uh, the agency was able to then make a, a secondary contract, a packaging deal, which meant that they would make a huge amount of money, far more than the 10% they're making from just those three people, um, as kind of racketeering, <laughs> I guess, or like what the mafia would do to bully somebody to give penance um, f- uh, to this agency. And because of the power dynamics, they were able to get away with it. And it wasn't just packaging that the WGA was fighting. Um, these agencies were trying to get out of contracts that were built in the 1910s, 1920s that said that they weren't able to produce their own content. So they were creating these sister companies. Almost all of the agencies were creating sister companies that would be production houses and management companies to then own the intellectual property of their clients and completely subvert the power. So instead of the clients um, being the employers, they would be the employees and it would be a huge conflict of interest. And so the WGA was fighting both of these wars simultaneously saying, this is bullshit. You're not going to try and steal all the money. And they got away with it. The, the WGA put up this fight that they didn't have to, and they won. Yeah. I mean, there's a very funny line, uh, in the movie. Uh, I forget which character it was, but he says, we don't need agents to pretend to be producers. And I, I just love that. It, it really kind of crystallizes, uh, how that, how that, how that, how that all shook out. But it, I, it, it has to have rubbed some people the wrong way. Have you heard, you know, have people, has anyone gotten to you and said, Hey, come on, we're, we're not pretending to be producers. We're not just getting that fee. No, I mean, nobody's seen it yet. I mean, I'm terrified okay. that when the 5th comes around, November 5th, when it comes out, people are going to, you know, get angry at us. But it's a comedy about face-sitting. You know, like, how serious can they take this fucking movie? Um, I know I, that is probably the biggest biting monologue in the film, where it is like, oof, I don't know, that, that might rub people the wrong way. We say um, we don't need agents to book our travel. Like, you know, travel agencies have died. Um, mm-hmm. why, don't, why won't you, basically? Um, and it's a huge insult. But it's true. And a lot of people feel that way. And certainly this character did. He's a Chinese multi-billionaire, um, you know, a media mogul. I think he has the right to be able to say that stuff um, to my pathetic character. I, I don't know. I think um, I think people will probably be offended, but it's the first time in human history that will, they will ever be made to feel inadequate, which is what they make their clients feel every fucking day. Uh, I wish people could see your face right there as you said that because that was a that was a that was a good look. Um, I, uh, I I so it is it is a very funny movie. It's a very I don't know satirical take on all this, but it's also it is weirdly poignant because it is dealing with uh, a thing that we are all dealing with, which is social media and the kind of dehumanization uh, that we are that we you know everybody who is nothing but a packet of data. Um, uh, is at this point. I mean, what was your, as you were sitting down to write this and, and shoot it, what were you, what were you thinking about as you were uh, putting together that kind of 
social media aspect of it? Yeah, I mean, it's frightening. The big data stuff was happening in the news a lot at the same time as this WGA fight was happening. And I kind of knew about it where, you know, all of your likes on Twitter are public, that anybody, any rogue agent could go through that stuff and find out how your brain works um, and and abuse that to, to build psychographic uh, analyses of who you are as a person and possibly completely derail your life. Uh, it's a very scary premise. And it's it's much more scary when it's done on a large scale by giant corporations that sway elections like Cambridge Analytica. But it's also possible for this little guy in a basement to start this purple envelope service to connect people to kind of get five grand out of each of them and become a billionaire. Um, and that kind of industry is only through the Internet and is very recent. And I don't think that we've fully understood the implications of that. And so we wanted to make this movie a bit as a cautionary tale uh, for the public to understand this stuff while they're also being entertained in this erotic thriller comedy, you know. <laughs> But you you have used social media to essentially build your own company, build your own brand. I mean, I would never have heard of The Wolf of Snow Hollow without social media. I mean, that's that's that is how I first turned on to it. And I and I feel like I have probably convinced more people to watch that movie via Twitter than, you know, I ever could have, you know, just talking to folks uh, in the office or whatever. I, I It is it is kind of a double edged sword, right? Yeah. And, but I think right now, especially post-COVID, social media has become the water cooler. It has become where people have those conversations. So like, I'm not surprised if you say that, like, oh, I've been sharing the trailer and people are actually seeing it. It's like, that's kind of the only way that people can talk these days. Like, I've been very lucky that people have liked our stuff and that people have shared it. And I, I am certainly a product of the internet as a filmmaker. I grew up on Reddit and my attention span certainly tells you that. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think it is a double-edged sword. It can be abused by people who are war criminals, but also I'm a small business. We're a small business. Like we're, we're making all these things to try and um, find an audience and make people laugh. And I think we actually do have an important product to sell, which is uh, humiliations of the powers that be and making people feel more powerful than than the system and um, and making them laugh. So I don't know. It's a complicated issue, but um, I feel like we've been able to skate along and do our stupid bullshit and get away with it. Yeah. In this in this kind of weird COVID post COVID environment, uh, you know, there there this uh, the beta test is going to be in theaters, but it is, I think, going to be seen by most people on VOD. Um, it's it's dropping day and date. What is your what's your take on the whole theatrical versus VOD split? I mean, I'm uh, a fairly rabid partisan of theaters, but at the same time, also recognize that the world of VOD has kind of broadened the ability uh, of folks to see lots of different things. And lots of different things to get made. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a bit like selling concert tickets versus digital downloads or CDs or vinyl. It's like there are non-overlapping audiences who appreciate medium in different forms. So like, you know, I mean, really going to film festivals and screening the films are for cinephiles. The people that buy those passes that are going to see your movie eight months before it comes out are the people who are the most crazed uh, adamant uh, cinephiles in history. And sometimes they can become the most vocal supporters of the film. Like David Fear saw the Thunder Road film at its premiere at South by Southwest and has been raving about it for the last four years, five years since that movie came out. Like uh, it, it's unbelievable. Like there are people who happen to have been in the th cinema to see it first because it's windowed earlier than it is for uh, VOD 
who will have that movie and that experience for the rest of their lives in a way that scrolling through Netflix and stumbling upon something is just not the same experience um, psychologically, uh, physically, being in a room with people who are laughing. Um, so I don't know. I, I, it depends on what day you ask me. I think um, you know Netflix, although you can get buried in it, is, a, is Madison Square Gardens right now. It's the largest venue. And having a film even on page four of their main page would mean that more people will see it than if you put it out on iTunes blindly. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very difficult and interesting thing. I'm always an adamant supporter of cinemas. I love cinemas. I love the experience of watching a movie and then walking out and having a group of people to talk to about the experience. Um, that feels like a much better way to digest media than just watching stuff whenever it feels much more loose and, um, I guess pedestrian that way rather than mm. church of cinema that I grew up in. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think, uh, I hope that answered your question. So that was a long answer sure. for a short question. No, that's, that's good. I have to have, you mentioned Netflix. Uh, there, there's a moment in the beta test where, where Ted Sarandos's name pops that, up. His, his personal Venmo popped up. Yeah. Did you request two cents from him? Did you, did you uh, request his, his opinion on, so yeah. uh, so yeah, what Sonny's talking <laughs> about is that there's a moment in the movie where, uh, our characters are saying, uh, you can use Venmo to ask people for stuff as, as a social network that is publicly searchable, which is so fucked up. Um, but we found Ted Sarandos on there, who's the CFO of, um, Netflix. And when Thunder Road was coming out, I, uh, I requested two cents from him to see if I could get his two cents on our movie. And he didn't respond um and then but i thought it was funny i thought that was a good clever thing and then for these agent characters trying to request two cents on them being an agent i was like oh we could incorporate this in and then stupidly it went out in this clip for berlinale and so many people who followed me on twitter were like i just requested ted sarandos his two cents on your trailer and they were like screen grabbing the vendor so i was like dude you're gonna get me into trouble it was like 20 <laughs> people and then and then he had to change it i think but yeah we uh, yeah, we accidentally cyber bullied a billionaire and <laughs> having to change something on his cell phone um not the worst thing that could happen but still i did feel, i did feel pretty bad about it uh so the the all right so the beta test drops uh this is going to go up on thursday we're a uh, peek behind the curtain we're talking on monday it's going to go up on thursday movie comes out on friday uh november 5th what do you uh this is a dumb question and i i apologize for asking it in advance but what do you hope people's response to it is i mean what are you what are you looking for from from the audience while they when while they're sitting down and, and watching this movie PJ, my co-writer and co-director, and I are just really thrilled to be here and to be taken seriously. Like, uh, honestly, PJ's like, I just hope people see it and they're just like, wow, that was dope. You know, like, that was a cool movie, um, which is kind of like how I feel watching David Fincher's movies. So like going to a cinema, and be like, finally, somebody gave a shit when they were making the movie. Um, but then I have these other ulterior motives that I don't think PJ shares too much with me. Um, maybe he does. But I really want this movie to be an inoculation to a lot of the bullshit of Hollywood where, you know, we, we have my character say, I'm excited. It's exciting. Let's keep talking. Let's circle back. Like all of that corporate doublespeak. I hope that when independent filmmakers hear that coming out of the mouths of people, they realize that it's bullshit and that they should be making movies on their own. And then we made this movie through a crowd equity platform, completely circumventing the Hollywood system, made it in this garage, finished it by ourselves didn't hire you know fancy people to finish it, um, didn't pay for expensive software to finish the film. We did it all inside of Adobe Creative Cloud. Um, really, I hope that it is a twofold um, inspiration for young people to say, I can do it myself. And you actually have much more freedom and become more famous from doing it that way.
Yeah. Well, this is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the first feature that you've co-written and co-directed, is that right? It is. Um, it is. What was it, what was, what, how was that different for you? I mean, I, I imagine it, uh, it, it makes it slightly easier to direct when you, you know, you're in front of the camera and you have somebody who's actually working with you behind the camera. But what was it, what was the difference like to talk, talk a little bit about how that, that process worked for you? So we, we have a constantly open video village on set. So even for my previous two films, anybody, doesn't matter who they are, if they are on set, they're welcome to watch what we're filming. I find it to be very educational for anybody who's on set to learn what it's like to make a movie and to feel present. It's very, it's a huge morale boost and we get to help out the next generation of filmmakers by doing that. So at any given time, I had three or four producers watching the monitor and saying, ooh, Jim sucks in this scene. How do we make this better? Um, or like, you know, there's a water bottle or the, the boom mic is too low. Like all of these thousands of things that would require me coming back and watching playback every time. And we don't have the budget or the schedule to be able to do that. So I'm very lucky that I have this wonderful team at Vanishing Angle to have done that for the previous two movies. With PJ, we were writing the whole film out loud. So in the writing process, it's just us acting out every scene a thousand times until it's any good or it's what it needs to be for the script. And then we write the script. So we were already sculpting this movie and directing it in the writing process. And then we recorded it as a podcast, just like this on the same microphone I'm talking to you through right now. And we do all of the parts. We put in music and sound design. So it becomes this uh, I guess like pre-visualization of what the movie's going to sound like. Hmm. And so, and I don't know anybody else that's done that, but it's the best way for us to convince people that the movie's going to be good. They can hear it a couple of times before they show up on set. And so really PJ and I were already directing the movie together while writing it. So it was just a no brainer for the two of us to direct it. And it was great. He spoke the same language that I spoke when I was directing it. I didn't have to tell him anything. We have the same sense of humor and we were both able to kind of, elevate the podcast and the script on set um, because we knew what we needed or what, where the film should go. And then also he could answer, you know, t t the same amount of questions that I could. So like if we needed a prop for a certain scene, people could go up to him and say, hey, what prop do you want for this thing? And he could give the right answer. Whereas for previous films, I had to do everything. Yeah. W will you ever release that that audio recording? I mean, it almost sounds like an audio play. Like I that that sounds like at the very least as a fun, you know, bonus feature on a on a Blu-ray or something. Maybe. The problem is that we have copywritten music in it. I think I could probably release it for free somewhere. Um oh. but we had like a bunch of Giallo music and like Bruno Nicolai songs in there. So I don't know. I don't know if we'd be able to do it. But oh. um I did it for Thunder Road and I did it for The Wolf of Snow Hollow as well. It could be interesting. I just don't know. Um, I don't know how I do it or what medium I would choose to do that with. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, conditions on set because I, this is a, obviously a big thing right now with the IATSE uh, potential work stoppage that was avoided. But uh, when I talked to when I talked to Natalie Metzger for this show, she talked about how uh, Vanishing Angle always wanted to have sets where people were not working their sixteen-hour days, where it was not you know like uh, people weren't. Uh, people weren't, you know, risking getting into car wrecks or whatever, driving yeah. home. What do you look at as you, as the director and the writer and, you know, uh, kind of on the production team, not, not technically a producer, but like, what are you, what are you looking for, for your, your onset standards? I want everybody to leave the film and two years after they worked on the film to have been happy that they worked on that film. And uh, that is a, an experience that is very rare in the film industry. And it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of making sure that everybody's happy um, and making them feel included and actively having them be included in everything. 
Uh, safety is its own thing that we start out every film set saying that there are four people who are handling safety. You can go to literally any of them if you feel unsafe or if anybody wants to complain about someone being unsafe, that, that it's all very safe and anonymized. Um, so we do have systems in place that are really wonderful at Vanishing Angle to make sure that people are taken care of and not abused in any possible way. We've all had to go through that on shitty sets, and it's the worst feeling in the world. But then also, it's not 16-hour days that they'd be working. We're trying to make sure that they don't work 11-hour days. Like, we, we shot 11 hours on Wolf of Snow Hollow, and we never went into overtime on the beta test. Like, we couldn't afford to. There were times where we'd have, like, 25 extras at the auction scene, and if we went five minutes into overtime, it would have cost us 10 grand. So, like, literally... It's kind of a, a function of the budget and the schedule that we make sure that everybody has their time taken care of. Um, but then also, it's just like much more of a summer camp experience than it is, you know, a, a kind of hierarchy. Nobody feels like they're above the line or below the line. It's like we're making this movie together, and if there's anything that I can do to make you happier, please let me know. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. I always like to ask uh, at the end if there was anything I should have asked, if there was anything you want people to know. Uh, about the beta test or the life in general uh and and uh I, I, if it is there what what have i what have i in my foolishness forgotten to ask nothing um i would just <laughs> say uh the movie's coming out on the 5th of november guy fox day it feels a bit like we are blowing up parliament with this film um and that it's okay to laugh at the powerful i think that's an important message to get out there but no everything else is fantastic Perfect. Thank you very much for being on the show, Jim Cummings. Uh, check out the beta test hits VOD and uh, in theaters on November 5th. And I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you guys then.